Hey, Asha, now that Trump faces over $400 million worth of fines and various court judgments, is he finally broke? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Miriati. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, big news on Friday. Not exactly unexpected, right? I think we all saw that coming. Uh, we figured that he was going to lose pretty big. He didn't lose quite as bad as he could have, but, uh, it, you know, the the judgment particularly when you look into, you know, when you look at the interest involved, it's very, very substantial. Right. So a, a New York Attorney General Letitia James was asking for $370 million. Um, and just to be clear on what this was, it, this wasn't, she wasn't asking for $307 million as a punitive damage, a damages award. Because this was a court of equity, this is about fairness. It's how how can New York be made whole for the fraud and that was perpetuated against it and the losses that have been incurred by New York businesses. So this was based on calculations of how Trump essentially unfairly enriched himself through his fraud. And so the amount that was being being awarded is a calculation of the unjust enrichment to Trump and basically disgorging him of those profits and giving it back to New York. It's sort of like squaring things off, like making things even. I just think that's important to understand because I saw some right-wing commentators on Twitter who are like, this is cruel and unusual punishment. And it's like, but it's not, it's not a punishment. This is, you know, a, an equitable remedy. Um, so she was asking for 370 million and Judge Arthur Engoran, is it Engoran or Engoran? I thought it was Engoran, but okay. Okay. Judge Arthur Engoran, uh, awarded, I think, 254 million, as you said, and that's before prejudgment interest. Yeah. The prejudgment interest brought it up much, much higher. Um, yeah, it was in, it was like in the 90 million. Yeah, it was very, very substantial. And of course, there's other, I think it's important to note, and, and it's really not emphasized enough, the non-monetary penalties, which I think are very substantial. There's a monitor is going to continue over Trump's businesses with, I think, an expanded purview, expanded role. And that monitor is a former judge, Barbara Jones, who, um, you know, is, is not exactly, uh, you know, uh, you know, not in bed with Trump in any way. And somebody who would say, you know, who's actually aggressively uh, addressed certain issues, brought certain issues to the court's attention. And then separately, um, they have to have an independent uh, independent compliance person who has a sort of a directorship, um, which is, I think, another separate issue. And I think, you know, in, in addition, there's a limit on his family's involvement in the business for some period of time and the be ability to run the business for some years. I, I really think that's very significant because and it's an input into when we talk about this money judgment, because, you know, in a real estate company, I've, I've prosecuted 
real estate moguls. I've represented them. Uh, I've been on both sides of that. And you know, when you need money, you're often trying to have a fire sale of real estate. And doing that generally requires you to be nimble. Um, and when you have all these outside people trying to uh, help you uh, run your business and over, you know, look you over your shoulder and second guess what you're doing, it's really hard to be nimble. Yes. And also an additional non-monetary remedy is that Trump is not allowed to uh, borrow loans from New York banks for three years, which is pretty much like every financial institution that does business in New York, uh, which is pretty much any legitimate financial institution. And all of these non-monetary remedies are, again, are related to the fact that this was a court of equity because courts of equity can award non-monetary relief, again, to make things fair, to kind of bring things back to what they should have been had this all not happened. And I think to your point about the babysitters for the Trump organization and the transactions, that's a big deal because now all of the transactions that happen with the Trump organization have to be approved. And I believe that Judge Jones was put in place even earlier in this litigation as a, a form of sanctions against Trump and other defendants because they weren't handing over information that they were required to. So they had the court put some put her in place to kind of, you know, have an adult in the room, I guess. Yeah. And also make sure that documents were, were being not, you know, not destroyed and not in a shredder in a back room somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They were being provided when necessary and so on, but she's already sort of uncovered issues and raised points to the court. She's already had a significant role, but having her around continuing there for some years, that is significant. Having the independent director, Significant. I mean, you call them babysitters, whatever, whatever word you want to use, having them around is going to make things challenging for Trump as he's trying to go to, oh, I don't know, Elon Musk or someone else begging for uh, cash. Yeah. So let's get to that. But let's first talk about what happens now, because I think the big question is, how is he going to pay it? How how does uh, Attorney General James recover this judgment, same way with E. Jean Carroll. Because remember that this civil fraud judgment is coming on top of the $88.5 million in combined uh, damages awards that were given to E. Jean Carroll in her two defamation cases. Um, And the question is, is he, so he's appealing the first judgment uh, that uh, the first award damages award that w- was given in the Eugene Carroll case. Um, I think he has until March 8th to post an appeals bond, which we'll talk about for the second case. And I don't know how he long he has for the civil fraud case, but basically one way that he can avoid paying everything up front is to appeal but to appeal, he has to post a bond. Yes. Now, I will just uh, say, uh, for and I want to be fully transparent here. So I, you know, I have lost civil case in Illinois where I had a, I have a, my clients post a bond. I was one of the trials and the one of the lawyers in the trial team. I've never done that in New York. So I have been reaching out to my colleagues and my firm or in New York, my partners in New York, 
and other lawyers that I know in New York trying to get specifics about this process. And I've noticed there's been a lot of vague discussions about this, but not a lot of specifics, which is what we like on our podcast, because I think at least for, you know, I think a lot of people don't really know. And for you and I, we're, we're not, tr- we don't want to try to muddle through this. So I know you've also been looking on your end, trying to get more specifics about what that process looks like in the state of New York and in, in state court. Yeah. And I had a really helpful subscriber to my Substack, who's a surety lawyer who, you know, wrote a, a, a long post explaining some of it. And then I've, I've read up. And so I'll, I'll explain what my understanding is. Um, so these appeals bonds or so there's a you can go to a company first to get a surety bond, which I think the legal term is a supersedious bond. Is that right? Yes. OK. So basically, this is a company that guarantees that the defendant will make good on the judgment when when the appeal is over. OK. And so the surety company charges a premium to the defendant to post the bond. The premium is something the defendant doesn't get back. So this is the price of the bond. Um, what I understand is the price of the bond is usually about 10%, but that can vary. And I'll come back to that. However, before giving this bond to the defendant, of course, this company, it's, it's basically insurance, right? So this, this company, it wants to know that the defendant has this money that they can recover what they're going to give up. So what happens is if basically the surety company is saying, okay, if he loses this bond, we're just going to hand over whatever, $400 million in cash to Letitia James. She walks away, she's happy, but then they need to get that money. So they need to know that Trump has it. So he would need to collateralize, I think, about 120% of the judgment. And that's because they need to make sure that he can cover the full judgment plus any interest that accrues through the course of appeal. So it sounds like for a surety bond, he would need to have, in this case, I guess, $40 million in cash up front just to purchase that bond and then be able to put up 120%, I mean, close to half a billion dollars in collateral. Um, and that would then allow him to continue with the appeal. Yeah, so a few, a few points I want to make. I mean, one thing this may help some of you understand is why um, there's a lot of settlements in civil cases. I mean, most civil cases settle before trial, even after a trial loss, there's usually a settlement in which um, uh, essentially both sides price all of this into the uh, the uh, settlement price. Essentially, the the not not only this the costs and the inconvenience of obtaining a bond, but the uncertainties of appeal and the delays associated with that, and so on and so forth. That's why there's so many settlements. That's one thing I want to make sure that everyone gleans from that. Secondly, I don't know that you'd pay a full 10% on something this large, okay? With with something of this size, if there really is ready collateral, collateral and very good collateral, you could imagine a circumstance in which um, they could potentially generate a lower price. That's just purely a business issue, okay? More than anything else, like whether, what's this value of their collateral and how much, you know, who else is out there willing to do this? 
I will say as somebody who's done a lot in both on the prosecutorial and defense side in the real estate industry, a lot of folks would just be tempted to find ways to extract cash from their real estate holdings. Real estate developers tend to be very highly leveraged. In other words, lots of loans for the amount of um, real estate that they have. But nonetheless, you would think that he would have ways of, 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 of getting that money. It's interesting um, to note, though, because of the issue you raised earlier, Asha, that though some of those avenues may not be available to him. In other words, if this was a typical real estate developer, what I would say is they're not going to bother with a bond. What he's going to do is he's going to potentially try to essentially self- uh, Liquidate? Self, yeah, prepay, either put it in an escrow, put a certain amount in an escrow account or something else, find some other way to deal with this. Um, and either put up collateral uh, to a bank or refinance or get additional loans or things like that to sort of, you know, deal with that. That's that's how this would be dealt with in, I think, a typical case. It, well, a settlement would probably also be very much in the cards in a typical case. Um, but but this is obviously anything, but particularly given the restrictions on, on getting loans from banks. Right. And I think that that is the avenue that he followed for his appeal in Carroll one, where the damages award was $5 million. And he basically deposited 5.5 million in cash with the court mm -hmm. to appeal. So I, he did not get a bond in that case. I will say that one, one thing that uh, maybe I read and heard differently with regard to the bond is that that there are underwriters for surety bonds. So they're looking at the cost benefit or the, the risk benefit analysis here, right? And so if Trump is unlikely to win on his appeal, then the odds that they're going to have to fork over 400 plus million in cash to the state of New York is high. And then they would need to then bring, they would be on the hook to bring all these enforcement proceedings to recover that against the collateral, right? That, uh, that, that Trump would put up. So my understanding was that could potentially drive up the price of the bond. Yeah, it is potentially the case. I mean, this is pretty complicated. I feel like we don't have enough information to really understand it. Like, I don't really know how much collateral Trump has. You know, in other words, you know, if you believe some news reports, right, he's got billions of dollars in collateral. So if he does, then it's not it's this is less of an issue. Um, another issue is potentially, um, uh, you know, where what additional sources of income he has, like where where is he? You know, what kind of cash well, he's is selling he tennis shoes now? Yeah, right. I mean, I will say the fact that he's selling trading cards and NFTs and, you know, uh, spray paint and tennis shoes and whatever else, um, you know, it, it really suggests that, you know, maybe his cash situation is much worse than you, you might think. I mean, also, of course, he's using campaign funds and RNC funds to pay his legal fees, which, of course, hurts his ability to win in the general, which, uh, you know, is his whole his whole legal strategy at this point. And, you know, if he doesn't either deposit this money or post a bond at some point in time, pretty soon, I think the state of New York can start trying to recover this judgment. So they can 
put a lien on his properties, they can they can start moving. So time is a little bit of the essence. And I think to your point, Renato, about, you know, the the additional cost of posting a bond and the and why it might be preferable to simply deposit the money. That's a lot of money to deposit um in, in you know with the court or bank escrow. We know that Elon Musk made a surprise trip down to Florida and there was some speculation that maybe maybe this was going to be some source of the funds that he might find to help just get the cash. Maybe it'll be Vice President Musk. Vice I President mean, that, that Musk. seems really Oh my god. That I seems like where that. Musk is headed, right? He wants to be Trump 2.0. And so nothing would surprise me there. And this is not a significant amount of money to him. Uh, all things considered, he's burned, essentially burned a lot more money than that into into flames uh, already. Just his acquisition of Twitter alone was was a forty four billion dollars that he probably, you know, couldn't get back the vast majority of that if he sold Twitter today. So, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens with Trump. I mean, I will say he's got. He, this is one of the most interesting circumstances. He's got a lot of things going for him. Okay. He's the leading candidate for president. He's got a lot of people who uh, will uh, obey his every word and accept everything he says is true. But financially, there may be a house of cards element here. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember when we woke up one day and suddenly this massive empire that we thought was threatening the United States suddenly was like, not that big of a threat. I mean, I remember when the Berlin Wall fell, it was like, oh my God, I was growing up being told that Soviet Union was so powerful and had all these nuclear weapons pointed at the US and this and that, and suddenly it went away. Um, and there's a lot, you know, there are a lot of people who thought F FTX was this amazing company until it wasn't. So it, you never know. Uh, and perhaps that may be why, um, you know, ha uh, Nikki Haley's sticking around in the presidential race. Yeah. I do think that this third party financing, I guess, if, you know, he wants to appeal this, has some implications because I don't know what kind of limitations there are. And to me, it would be incredibly problematic to be beholden to some third party that paid that amount of money for you. I mean, I think it's unlikely that he's going to prevail on appeal. So anyone who is handing over this kind of cash for him to deposit is willing, is basically doing so knowing they're going to lose it, which means that Trump is going to owe them a lot of money. So I don't know if besides Elon Musk, I'm assuming he can't get like the Saudis or like Putin to put up money, can he? I mean, I would think that there has to be some sort of approval with the Trump org babysitters be able to stop that because i mean how would you how would that work he's then in debt indebted to some third party foreign state and then he gets elected president like okay i'm sure that'll work out fine okay well a few things so first of all he main a win or loss on appeal is not like an all or nothing thing so is it possible that the, the the decision by the judge gets altered somewhat? Yeah, it's possible. Okay, so I would put it that way. I don't know. Um, you know, I have not, you know, looked at this, to, you know, to the extent that somebody who's working on the case would, but that's possible. 
But yeah, I do think that anybody looking to loan him money is going to be concerned about have, losing it, but it depends entirely on the value of the collateral. You know, one issue with real estate developers, commercial real estate developers in particular, they're not very liquid. Um, and it's a huge issue for them. Um, in his case, he's got, you know, all sorts of properties, right? He's got, um, uh, re very, re you know, residential high rises. He's got golf courses and so on and so forth. So, you know, the reality is, uh, for him, you know, if, if, you know, he has trouble turning them into cash anytime soon, a, a company could take advantage of him effectively, uh, by saying, okay, we want a massive amount of collateral posted for us to, you know, provide this bond to you. And maybe they're indifferent. They're like, okay, we're happy to own all these golf courses and hotels and so on. Renato, and so forth. though, that's, that's assuming that they would be first in line. That's right. And also they have to <laughs> be concerned about the valuations. Uh, given that this is a guy who lies about valuations, boy, you're going to want a third party to come in and provide, um, you know, really fantastic valuations and not rely on the information provided by Trump and so on and so forth. There are certainly issues there. This is a massive um, issue for the Trump organization and, you know, in this transaction to get the, you know, to get the money that he needs to. Um, will be a very significant one. I would just say that for one of my clients, if they were facing this alone as a legal problem, it would be like a bet the company sort of matter. For any company, it would be a very massive problem. Like, oh my God, we've got a monitor now. We've got some independent person here. We've got hundreds of millions that we owe. You know, we've got uh, a lot of uncertainty going forward. Now our founder and our, some of our management, like the CEO, can't be involved for a period of time. Very concerning. Um, but, you know, obviously for Trump, this is just like another week, right? And he's facing a criminal trial in less than a month. Yeah. On the merits of the appeal, I guess I would say a couple of things that because this was a bench trial and Judge Ngoron was deciding both questions of fact and law, he should be getting a lot of deference for his factual determinations including what he noted was Trump and the other defendants' other, utter lack of remorse, which he said bordered on the pathological. And I think is part of why he went on the higher side of, uh, you know, calculating the disgorgement amount. Um, the other thing I would say is on the legal side, these were based on calculations. I mean, every all of the amounts were based on either here's interest that Trump got away with not paying. Here is the value of a property that he was able to obtain because he made false representations about his wealth. So, yeah, I you know, it's, it's not my point is it's not like an arbitrary number that was pulled out of thin air. And I would I will say that the possibly the one draconian measure that could have really. I think gotten a lot of scrutiny was the initial uh, ruling that Judge Ngoron made earlier in the case where he canceled Trump's business certificates. But he walked that back on Friday. And he basically said, I'm not doing that. We're going to kind of let this play out with the monitor. And I, I'm assuming he's leaving it open that that could happen. But he didn't do that kind of across the board, that corporate death penalty piece. 
That, that's right. I, I hear you there. And I and he definitely was concerned about appeal and thinking forward, which is why this opinion took longer than some people would like. I mean, one thing I will say is somebody who's inside the legal system spends a lot of time litigating. Um, the expectations that the public has regarding the speed of the legal system is, is insane. Um, this has actually been a very fast resolution uh, for a judge. There are often times where judges take forever to give me uh, a decision after a bench trial. Um, and, you know, partly that's just because, uh, you know, uh, you know, judges don't have a boss and they don't have anyone holding their feet to the fire. And so they can always delay it. You know, it's, have you ever been in a situation where you don't have a deadline to do something? It's like always falls to the bottom of your list. So, um, you know, the fact that we have an opinion this quickly, I think is actually quite remarkable. So the other big news last week, Renato, was basically a two-day episode of The Real Prosecutors of Fulton County. Yeah, that was one of the most dramatic uh, and uh, personal hearings that I've ever been to. I've, I've never in my life actually seen prosecutors grilled to the extent that Fonnie Willis was grilled during this hearing. I mean, I've never seen that. A lot of defendants, this would be like their their dream uh, to be able to, it's like cathartic, right? To be able to go at the prosecutor this way. And, you know, at one point she said, I'm not on trial, you're on trial. Well, sure looked like she was on trial this week. Um, and that was really by her own choice, by the way, Asha. It looked to me like the judge was not going to force her to testify. Fonnie Willis to testify, but she sort of made her own decision. Like it was like the judge is like, "Ah, eh, why do we need her testimony and this and that?" And then she's like, "Fonnie Willis is here. Like she's taking the stand." And it was um, dramatic um, and uh, very gossipy. It was like a real, like you said, it was almost like a lunatic, right? The Real Housewives of Fulton County. Um, and yet, I don't think it really mattered that much legally at the end of the day. Yeah, it, I guess we should remind our listeners what the actual issues were, which was whether Fonnie Willis had financially benefited from this arrangement of basically hiring or basically having a relationship with the person that she appointed to be a special prosecutor in this case. So it was about the flow of money that when they were going on these trips together, was she benefiting from it? So a lot of her testimony was about whether she paid for her share and how she paid for it. And, you know, does she have receipts and, and all of this stuff? And then I think the other issue was the timeline of the relationship. And I think that that went to representations that had been made to the court by Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade after the defendant filed this motion to have her disqualified. Yeah. So essentially the issue there, just so to put a finer point on it, the, the first issue you mentioned, Asha, Fonnie Willis is a public servant. She's using taxpayer money. She hires Nathan Wade, who she knows very well, has a relation, you know, a, a relationship with whether it was romantic or not, somebody that she knew well. Um, she hired him and paid him a lot of money. I mean, it was over $650,000. So you know, it's a significant amount of money, even if it's, you know, only $250. Well, she didn't pay a, him. The state of Georgia paid him and he was being paid by the hour. 
Correct. He's being paid. That's true with taxpayer money. Um, but that was her decision, right, to hire him and pay him. I will also say, yes, he was paid by the hour, but his time entries would not hold up. Uh, if I was submitting those time entries to my clients, to a Fortune 500 company, let's say, um, they would not just, oh, you know, let's fork over the cash for your block billing of, you know, 16 hours in one day or whatever he worked, you know, sometimes like 24 hours practically, you know, just working and with vague time entries. Okay. So I, he, but he got a lot of money in the end. He got 650 something thousand um, or more. Um, but the, the bottom line is what does she have to have to do with her? Right. I mean, in other words, yes, she hired this guy. Yes, he got paid. And the issue was they went on vacations together you know, and he bought airline tickets and so on and so forth. This looked like a benefit to her trips that she was taking essentially that she couldn't have afforded on her salary or that, she, you know, she was getting a supplement. And really the way the testimony came out was she claimed that she paid him back in cash. Um, and basically her, her statement was, her testimony was that she keeps, a lot of cash on her at all times. She always keeps $200 in cash on her because you never know what a man's going to do. And you might want to just pay your own way and get the heck out of a date. And that her dad had always taught her to keep lots of cash on hand uh, because you just never know. And you may not be able to get money out of a bank. And she viewed it like this was a cultural thing. Like this is what in the black community in Georgia, this is how we're taught to be. And it, it was an interesting um defense, because just generally speaking, I would say a judge would be skeptical of somebody who's like, I paid someone thousands of dollars in cash. I have absolutely no record of that payment. He has no record of receiving this money, like no deposit slips, no nothing. And we didn't use like wire transfer or Zelle or PayPal. We just, you know, the, the money just went that way. This was her way of offering context. She ultimately had her dad testify to back that up oh, as to why she had cash and why she was paying in cash. Yeah. It was just kind of really weird. Yeah. I have to say, you know, one thing because I'll just it's, say, there was something gendered about that too. Yes. I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, hmm. I mean, I, you know, were these vacations that were so extravagant that she truly wouldn't have had the capacity to pay back? Cause I, otherwise, if not, I don't know, like my boyfriend and I split costs when we go traveling too. I I think that's right. I think that's I'm a right. Woman. I mean, I think I'm I'm sorry. I said I'm a working woman. As well, Bonnie exactly. Willis says, a man is not a plan. A man's a man's a companion. A man is a companion. A man is not a plan. I make I pay my own way. Uh, and I hear that. Uh, and I think she could look she gained some supporters through her testimony. Um, you know, and in term, but in term, in terms of the money, um, I, I have to say that to me is a closer call than it needed to be necessarily. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, she definitely put herself out there with the cash thing and she had her dad testify. Her dad said he watched her prior days testimony. He couldn't, for, he couldn't miss it on TV. He, he said, so, you know, there would be, I, I could see some judges being skeptical about it. But I think the broader issue with it is, I mean, I think that the standard, the legal standard is so high that there has to be a conflict of interest. Essentially, that would be creating uh, uh, an incentive for her to be unfair to the defendants. Um, 
I, I don't think that that's going to get met here. So I really don't think it matters legally. And the um, burden but, is on the defend the, the defendant who was bringing this motion, correct? Correct. So, I mean, it's not her burden to show that she paid him back. I mean, she has to, you know, I think it's in her interest to give her version, but the burden's on him, the defendant. That's right. Although to be fair to the, the other side of it, what they would say, the defendants would say is, okay, well, we see that he's paid for her, her travel. There's no record of her paying him back. So on a 51% standard or preponderance standard, the preponderance would be that he didn't pay, since there's no record of it, no written documentation of her ever paying him that that didn't happen. Her testimony was, to, and the testimony of her father and so forth was to rebut that. Um, I, I do, I will just say this. I mean, I don't, th I think given the legal standard, I don't think the judge is going to go there. I certainly think that if this was a typical case, okay, this is one of my clients, it would definitely never go there. Okay. In other words, the judge would have no patience for this. We probably wouldn't have even had a hearing. However, um, I will just say that, you know, he, he, you know, I do think her decision to testify and to get into such personal details about a relationship from a legal perspective, I'll just say it was not great judgment. It's something I would have not advised her to do. It may be the right thing from a court of public opinion, okay? And if I was a lawyer, I wouldn't have told Brett Kavanaugh to be talking about his beer, okay? I mean, it. it's just, um, you know, it, it's just, it may, if I don't work for him, okay? He's the United States Supreme Court Justice, so what do I know? But from a purely legal perspective, not uh, I would not have advised her to take the stand the way she did. Yeah. And then on the second issue, it got even more personal because that got into when their relationship started and, you know, it got in, I think, into other like gendered issues where, you know, uh, you know, they asked her, like, when was the first time they met? And then she got really upset because she the implication was that she had slept with him the first time they went out or the first time they hung out. I, I don't even know. I, like, I. And then about when they ended and how men decide that a relationship ends before women decides. And I'm just like, but I think that also that all of that was to, to get to the veracity of the presentation they made to the court on the timeline of their relationship, as far as I understand it. That's right. And I think that ultimately that was a sideshow. It was just essentially they were claiming that there was a dishonesty in the filings and that that wasn't there. Uh, I, I think that. I guess the way I would look at it is this. This is what, I, you know, from a broader perspective, because I will say a lot of people, I think, also felt sympathetic to Fonnie Willis and her father, because both of them talked about how difficult this has been and the threats she's received and all that she's been under. And I'll just say I totally relate to that and understand that. You know, when I was a federal prosecutor, I did have uh, threats in my life. I was in protective custody for a period of time as a result of extremely uh, credible uh, and imminent threat to my life. Um, but, but, you know, ultimately, I always viewed that as part of the job of being a prosecutor is you're a public servant, you're going after people, and there are there are, you know, there are pressures and dangers that come with that. And part of the other pressure, Asha, is the defense comes after you. And I will just tell you, I've had people try to get me fired. I've had people accuse me of all sorts of things. That was just that's par for the course when you're dealing with, you know, high power defense attorneys in a high profile case. If you're doing something important, people are coming after you. And so I think, you know, it's a, hopefully a window that people could see into our process that it's it's rough and tumble and being a prosecutor is really 
hard. Um, I don't think any of this matters, but I think the defense got what they wanted out of here, which is the opportunity to grill the prosecutor and try to put her through her paces and try to question her and potentially try to trip her up. Yeah. And she pushed back on that. And she said, you know, I'm not the one that's on trial here, no matter how much you want to make that the case. But I think to your point about the scrutiny and challenges that prosecutors face, as you know, I, I frankly, with in her testimony, was rooting for Fonnie Willis. I thought she was really strong. I liked I, she gave solid dating advice. You know, I, I was very pro Fonnie in that regard. However, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that she could have totally seen this coming. And getting involved with this prosecutor was a completely unforced error. And this whole thing would have been avoided if she had used better judgment. I mean, I just don't understand. I still right now don't understand what her thinking was in in doing this in in this kind of case that is going to come under the kind of microscope that she knew it would um to me that just evinced really really poor judgment on her part yeah i agree 100 percent. i mean i don't think anybody could defend the judgment here it was clearly very very poor it was inevitable that this was going to happen um and that's why i said i also thought her judgment I just thought her judgment was poor, at least from a legal perspective, taking the stand and giving us all her dating advice and life advice and everything else. While I agree that it, she was likable, maybe it helps from an electoral perspective, getting reelected as DA. Um, and that, that may be what she was aiming for there. But just purely if in terms of this prosecution, which is, I think, safe to say the highest profile prosecution ever in the state of Georgia, just not a smart move. Yeah, it's definitely, I think tarnish the case and given a lot of fodder to discredit the 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 basis for it and i think as we've discussed many times it's really allowed the focus to get away from the gravity and substance of the actual charges being brought and put it on the character of the prosecutors So, Asha, before we go, um, you and I talked a little bit earlier today about breakfast cereal. Uh, do you still eat breakfast cereal? What's your favorite? I am not really a cereal eater anymore. Um, I do eat granola with fruit and yogurt. Like I kind of make myself a little fruit parfait and put some granola in there for a little extra crunch. Sometimes I will make oatmeal. I don't know if that counts. So I, yeah, so I just, I saw Asha eating some breakfast earlier today. I thought it was, thought it was cereal. Um, I like you, I have actually, um, like steel cut oats or whatever every day. That's, that's what I have. Um, I usually, um, you know, that's just sort of my daily routine. Have that and fruit is my breakfast. I used to love breakfast cereal. Like when I was a kid, it was like I loved Captain Crunch and peanut butter Captain Crunch and Cookie Crisp. Probably my favorite was Cinnamon Toast Crunch, which I think is ridiculously good. Really good. But as they get older, you realize it's all processed carbs mm -hmm. and you can't have it all the time. And so the biggest consumer, the, I mean, my stepdaughter has an insane amount of Trader Joe's various cereals. Um, like she goes through the boxes 
almost immediately, like we'll get a, get a box and the box is gone by that evening or literally, or by the next morning. Um, but also Henry is a very large consumer of cereal because oh. his liver is a liver disease. So he can't have protein. Oh, so his treats are Cheerios. Uh, that's how I give him medicine and so forth is he sits for Cheerios and we'll do little tricks for Cheerios and so forth. So when you thought I was eating cereal, you suspected Lucky Charms. And I want to know where that came from. Like, why do I look like a Lucky Charms girl? You are like super fun. So I always think of like, what's the most fun cereal? That's how I think of you in my in my mind, in my heart. Uh, I think, like, what is the most fun cereal you can imagine? And so it's like either I would think Lucky Charms or Fruit Loops, which are not they don't have fruit in them. They are F-R-O-O-T. Fruit. Fruit. Fruit Loops. loops. To me, those those are the most fun cereals, right? Really? Okay. Okay. I liked Fruity Pebbles when I was a kid. Fruity Pebbles are not... disgusting. Okay. Okay. Come on now. <laughs> like what? This, this is I, just. I do uh, have to I, put I that on the record. Fruity Pebbles oh are disgusting. God. Lucky Charms was always a cereal that I wanted to like, but halfway through it got soggy and everything got too sweet and you can't finish it. And if I was going to go for a cereal that had marshmallow mar- quote unquote marshmallows which were just dried whatever i guess dried marshmallows um do you remember count chocula of course how can you forget i don't think they have that anymore but i used to love that whole line like count chocula blueberry 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 and then what was the strawberry one frankenberry yeah so i used to love they used to have a captain crunch one with berries and it had like they were like red balls of some kind of berry, and then they had Captain Crunch in there. I love. I was a big Captain. It's not Captain. Cap, cap, it's not Captain. It's Captain. Captain. Captain Crunch. So yeah. I loved. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved that when I was a kid. And of course, our favorite national cereal nowadays, Cocoa Puffs, <laughs> because we've gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Wow. I was going to go. I thought you were going to go in a totally different direction. Oh, really? Okay. What, what were you thinking? I thought like, I thought you were going to say an actual cereal we all loved, like Life Cereal or something like that. By the way, can I also say, do you get the ads, Asha? Like, So I get targeted with ads for like these supposedly healthy cereals where they're like this high protein cereals. I'm not going to name names because I'm going to say I tried those and they're like really bad. Oh, they're like, disgusting. These, like, yeah, they taste like garbage. Like yeah. they're like... They're like super high protein. They're made with like they must be but made with like protein like powder. Yeah, they they're just they're they yeah. they very. So it's odd like taste you've got them. fruity pebbles on one end of the spectrum, and then those protein cereals on the other. <laughs> yeah, I just cannot force myself to eat them. I'll literally eat protein shakes or protein bars, but I cannot stand the protein cereal. Okay, let's just agree on cinnamon toast crunch and leave it there. M-S-W-Media.